Welcome everyone to the December 16th, 2022 edition of Defending Democracy with Mark Elias and Paige. Uh, this is our first podcast of sort. I, we've done spaces up until now, but this is the first time we've recorded this um, as a podcast, hopefully a, a good sign for things to come um, in the new year. Um, but Paige, let's go ahead and, and jump into the day or the week that was. Um, we are able to take people's questions. Uh, we're not able to do it in the same real-time way that we have in the past, but hopefully as we proceed with uh, moving to a more podcast-like uh, 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 forum, it'll expand access, uh, more people to listen, and we'll still find ways to weave in your questions uh, throughout the week um, uh, as people uh, post them uh, on social media or otherwise send them into uh, Democracy Docket. But the big news of the week, Paige, and there's a lot of big news. I mean, let's be honest, we've had news in North Carolina just within the last few minutes. Uh, but the big news of the week, I think, has to be in Arizona, uh, where we have seen um, four separate election contests um, for three different offices. Uh, there has been uh, two election contests filed involving the governor's race that Katie Hobbs uh, defeated Carrie Lake. Uh, there has been one uh, in the uh, AG's race um, uh, and one uh, in the Sec Secretary of State's race. Uh, and each of them have, uh, Paige, involved a colorful cast of characters. That's a, that's a really nice way to put it, Mark. We just finished the motion to dismiss oral arguments in Mark Fincham's case, who's challenging his loss in the Secretary of State's race. And I think that was the wildest oral argument I've seen. You've probably seen more, but of the ones I've covered for Democracy Docket, it's definitely a top five. And, and um, you know, I didn't listen in, but uh, among the highlights, uh, which I mean, I have to say, I've never heard a lawyer say before, the lawyer, the lawyer for Fincham seemed to concede the fact that he might be disbarred over the arguments he was making, but that this was okay. Oh yeah. He was, he said, if I get disbarred, it's fine because I want to retire anyway. He was like, I've been working for too long and I'm over this. And he said, quote, I only took this case because someone had to do it. Yeah. Well, someone had to do it, but I don't anticipate that that is uh, going to go very far. And speaking of which, um, the, you know, the headline, uh, but for that hearing um, and the bizarreness of the claims that are being made there, the headline in the state of Arizona really is around the Carrie Lake contest. Uh, Carrie Lake, for those of you who have not been listening regularly, uh, is a election denier, uh, a big lie advocate, uh, a uh, ultra MAGA Republican who uh, reveres uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and like Donald Trump, uh, she lost her election. Uh, but rather than concede graciously, she has turned to uh, the lawyer for cyber ninjas uh, that uh, you may remember there was a post-election audit in 2020 uh, in, uh, in Arizona that was called by the legislature. It was a total circus. It was a joke. Um, uh, it was conducted by this uh, outfit called Cyber Ninjas. They were looking for bamboo filaments in the paper ballots page to see whether the ballots had been printed uh, overseas. Um, 
uh, and in any event, their lawyer was a guy who some of you may remember that Cochise County tried to hire and and they and Cochise County couldn't even get this guy to work for them. But but um, uh, this guy is her lawyer um, and they are challenging the outcome of the governor's race basically by alleging that everything that could possibly be done fraudulently and correctly in Maricopa County, the largest county in the state, were done. Uh, that hearing uh, on the motion to dismiss uh, will be next week on Monday morning. So be on the lookout for that. Democracy Docket will be covering that, no doubt, uh, live. But, but it really shows, uh, Paige, that, you know, you, you might have thought that after 2020, the crazies had given up on these fantastical post-election lawsuits, but it's almost become now a, um, uh, an article of faith or like a validation to, you know, bring one of these cases, be laughed out of court and then say, you know, the system was rigged against me. Yeah, these cases are a mess. And it's interesting because they contradict each other. So in Carrie Lake's lawsuit, she's alleging all of this fraud in Maricopa County. And then you have Abe Hamaday, who's running for the attorney general of Arizona in his lawsuit, which he's bringing with the support of the Republican National Committee. His lawsuit begins by saying that they're not, quote, alleging any fraud, manipulation or other intentional wrongdoing, end quote. So you have one lawsuit saying there was fraud everywhere. And another lawsuit saying there wasn't any fraud. We're not saying that, but we do see some other issues. Right. But isn't that the 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 most interesting thing about this? Um, that here it is, you have the AG candidate, as you say, supported by the Republican National Committee. When we say supported by the Republican National Committee, the Republican National Committee is actually a plaintiff in that case. And they are saying no fraud, right? They're saying there was no fraud in the election. But Kerry Lake, who is not enjoying the visible support, at least, of the RNC, their lawyers, their, their themselves as a named plaintiff, they are claiming massive fraud. So you have this disconnect even within the kind of right wing, you know, election denier movement about what their theory is about why they lost rather than just, well, they lost. Right. And along with that, you had a pretty clear victory for Katie Hobbs in the governor's race. The AG's race is a lot closer. The Abe Hominay and the Democratic candidate Chris Mays were separated by 511 votes. That's currently undergoing a recount, but you have these wildly different claims being made. But both of these cases have their motion to dismiss oral arguments on Monday. So we'll see how it goes there. But the fourth case, Mark, I want to mention is from an Arizona state senator, Sonny Borelli. Now, how did he find a lawyer? Right. Because like we've gone pretty far down. The, the lawyers for Fincham are the lawyers that Cochise County got when the cyber ninja people wouldn't take it. So like you have this like pecking order, right? You have like the woman who's running for RNC chair against Rona McDaniel, Hermie um, Dillon. Uh, she's representing the RNC and the AG candidate. Lake has the cyber ninja lawyer. Fincham's got the lawyers that Cochise County hired after the cyber ninja lawyers wouldn't. So that's kind of that. And Fincham's lawyer is the one who said that if he has to be disbarred, he's ready to retire anyway. But now we now you come to Sonny Borelli, 
Who the hell is his lawyers? He couldn't find any in Arizona. He had to go to Texas and find some lawyers in Houston. <laughs> so he has a local counsel because you need one. But his the law firm listed on his filings is based in Houston, Texas. It always all comes back to Texas. It always all comes about back to Texas. And uh, uh, we're going to probably have an opportunity to talk a little bit about Texas later. But let's talk about the other really big news in voting since we were last um, all uh, assembled. Uh, and that is the oral argument in Morby Harper. For those of you who, who don't remember, Morby Harper uh, is the case that came out of North Carolina involving their congressional redistricting map. And the question is whether or not when the U.S. Constitution says that the legislature shall set the time, place, and manner of federal elections subject to congressional override, whether it means only the legislature or whether it also means the general state process, which would include governors vetoing bills, and most importantly for our purposes, whether it includes uh, state Supreme Courts reviewing legislative enactments for consistency with state constitutions. Um, up until, as we sit here now, no court has ever held that state courts cannot apply their own constitutions to review state legislative enactments. Um, this goes by the moniker of independent state legislature theory. This is a doctrine, or not a doctrine, a theory, rather. It is not a doctrine because, in fact, no court has ever adopted it, so there's no doctrine. There's just a theory. It is a fringe right-wing theory that has kicked around right-wing academia for some time, but it got a hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court, and this will involve not just, um, not just redistricting, but potentially all election laws that are passed in states that relate to federal elections. So it would deal with, you know, laws involving absentee voting and in-person voting and drop boxes and, you know, how many polling places you have, whatever. Anything that involves uh, uh, voting would be subject to this. And also potentially under the elect the electors clause, the way in which state uh, states choose their electors. Uh, and whether the state legislature is acting accordance with their state constitutions there. So that's that's um, uh, that's that's the background of the case. And Paige, you know, I wrote about on Democracy Docket the um, my thoughts afterwards. And, and we have become used to sort of um, outcomes in the Supreme Court that are very cut and dry. Now, sometimes we're not happy with the outcome, um, but they are but they're knowable because you'll have a majority opinion and you'll have a dissent. And the majority opinion is just that. It is a majority opinion. It is the opinion of the court. That is the opinion that we all now follow. So as awful and terrible as Dobbs was, there was an opinion, right? And everybody knows what the opinion in Dobbs was. It, it overturned Roe versus Wade and returned the issue of abortion back to the states. Um, what we have been less... Uh, used to in the last few years, but which historically is not uncommon, are fractured opinions, um, where there is no majority opinion. You know, three justices say one thing, two justices say something else, another two justices say uh, still something else, then each of the remaining justices writes separately. And you're kind of left trying to piece together from the various opinions, kind of what the, what the court where there are five votes. And sometimes that can be really, really hard to do. And my takeaway from the argument was that, you know, you, you had, I think, 
three of the liberal justices who don't buy ISL at all or, or pretty much don't buy ISL. Um, you had Justice Gorsuch, who seemed to be like all in, you know, like show me where to sign up. Um, I, I love ISL. Um, you had, um, you know, the rest of the justices were seemed to be trying to see if there is a middle ground. And the middle ground that they are kind of fishing around is, is there a place, is there a way that a state court could interpret its state constitution that is so nonsensical, so out of bounds? You know, the state constitution says that uh, you have a right to an absentee ballot uh, and they interpret that to mean absentee balloting is unconstitutional, you know, where it's like an upside down interpretation. And there was a lot of time of the argument spent about that, about like what, whether there are limits to kind of how this, um, how you might find that middle ground. And, and what will be interesting to see is whether or not, if that's where the court goes, um, whether there can be five votes for a clear middle ground um, or whether you're just going to have a splintering of what the middle ground is. And it just won't be, it just won't be entirely clear until the next case comes up. So that's kind of where I, um, uh, that's where I sort of think things wound up uh, in the argument. We won't know till June when we get the opinion, but I think the other thing that I wanted to, to point out is that, um, you know, even after this ISL case is decided, you know, think about the posture page of how this case got to the Supreme Court. And the other case that people sometimes point to that was sort of a, had a ISL flavor in a concurrence uh, was Bush versus Gore. Both of those cases were U.S. Supreme Court reviewing state Supreme Courts. So the cases went up through the state courts, the state Supreme Court, and then cert was granted at the, um, uh, at the, by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, if that's the only mechanism, right, if, if, if the only way to bring up an ISL claim is through the state courts to the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, just keep in mind, Paige, there are 100 million lawsuits filed a year in the United States. 500,000 of those are in federal court. Um, uh, of, the, of all of those, about 7,000 are petitioned to the U.S. Supreme Court every year, but the Supreme Court only hears about 70 of them. So, you know, unless there is some expanded way for ISL to come up other than procedurally through state courts to the U.S. Supreme Court, it'll also be a question about how ISL actually works in practical terms. Well, like I said, we'll have a decision uh, in June of 2023. But Paige, in addition to ISL, there is lots else going on in redistricting in North Carolina and in North Carolina generally that I think has been kind of overshadowed, frankly, by this one case sort of looming over everything. Right. So we got a couple of decisions this morning from the North Carolina Supreme Court. The one involving redistricting is that the North Carolina Supreme Court blocked the state's remedial Senate map and remanded it back to the lower courts for it to be redrawn. So, Mark, let's clear up some confusion here. The North Carolina state court system is still reviewing the state Senate, state House, and congressional maps. And these were all remedial maps that were drawn after the Supreme Court initially struck them down for partisan gerrymandering. 
They upheld the state house and the congressional map, but they said the state Senate map, something's wrong here. It needs to be fixed. More v. Harper grew out of this lawsuit, right? The issue about the congressional map with independent state legislature theory, that's what went to the Supreme Court. The North Carolina Supreme Court was still reviewing the maps to make sure that they complied with state law. So that's the decision that came down today. SCOTUS still hasn't issued a decision in more, like we said. But the other big news today in North Carolina was that the state Supreme Court struck down a 2018 law requiring photo ID to vote because they found that it violates the North Carolina Constitution because it was passed with the intent to discriminate against Black voters. And this isn't the first time that a law like this has been struck down in North Carolina. Yeah, no. In fact, um, years ago, I was involved in um, uh, in a lawsuit uh, that is, you know, became somewhat, uh, you know, well known and famous because it is the lawsuit that the Fourth Circuit, the federal court, the Fourth Circuit, said that the law had been passed with sur- near surgical precision to target black voters. Um, this was a law that was passed literally within uh, weeks of the Shelby County decision. So Shelby County comes down from the Supreme Court. The provisions of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act are, listed, are lifted. And all of a sudden, North Carolina comes into session and takes what was a relatively small voting bill, makes it into a gigantic voting bill. And it has all of these pieces, all of which are sort of directionally anti-voting and particularly targeting black voters. And that law was struck down. So the, the you know, people think of North Carolina as a purplish state, but the legislature, due to gerrymandering, due to gerrymandering, the legislature in North Carolina is among the worst in the country on issues related to voting. And so every time you see one of these cases come out of North Carolina, it is a it is a blow to the efforts in North Carolina to make voting more difficult and in particular more difficult for voters of color. And that's why, Paige, I don't want to skip over or skim past the impact of that redistricting case earlier today. Because though the case, and this is, Paige, why it's going to be so damn complicated. I mean, let's just be honest, this is going to be complicated. Because when we talk about the case in the U.S. Supreme Court, the Independent State Legislature in Dr. case, that involved congressional redistricting. So the question of whether state courts can interpret their state constitutions for federal elections, congressional elections, is what involves the question for the U.S. Supreme Court. But the decision today that effectively undid gerrymandering in North Carolina um, or is undoing North Carolina's um, partisan gerrymandering uh, in its state legislature. That is not subject to a Supreme Court review for ISL. That is clearly and unambiguously and unquestionably within the, 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 um, the purview of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, and Page, you know, we saw in in Pennsylvania and Michigan what happens when you break these extreme partisan gerrymanders. Right. You when extreme partisan gerrymanders are broken, the wills of voters are accurately reflected and it can really change how that state goes. We saw it in Michigan with things like the abortion measure and the voting measures being passed because those were citizen led ballot measures those probably wouldn't have gotten through the gerrymandered Michigan legislature. Um, Michigan legislature, I believe, 
Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, is now blue. It's a yeah. trifecta after yep. the midterms. Um, so it's not over. And I'll also add in, because I know we'll get the question of how does this North Carolina law discriminate against Black voters? So this was a law, the bill number was SB824. It provided a very narrow list of acceptable photo IDs to vote. And lawmakers passed this law that the photo IDs that were listed as accepted on this list, white voters in North Carolina were more likely to have than black voters. And the IDs left off the acceptable list, black voters were more likely to have than white voters in North Carolina. So we're still reviewing the decision now. We'll have a full explanation up on our website soon. But North Carolina, things keep happening there. But the other big state this month, Mark, was down in Georgia with the Senate runoff. Yeah. And the Senate runoff, boy, what an emotional night that was. I mean, to see Reverend Warnock stand on the stage um, having won, you know, a runoff election against Herschel Walker. Um, and let's be honest, it was a runoff election. The only reason why we had a runoff election was because, uh, the state of Georgia perpetuated a racially discriminatory practice. You know, almost all of you listening to this, you think about where you live. There are no runoff Senate elections, right? Like think about that page. You know, you, you go to, you go to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Kansas, California, Oregon, Michigan, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, right? Alaska, like pretty much wherever you go, there are no runoff Senate elections. So the question is, why is there a runoff Senate election in Georgia? It's one of the uh, handful of states that have them. And all of them that have them are in the Deep South. And they all are born of Jim Crow and an effort to to perpetuate a system that makes it hard for uh African-American citizens to elect their candidate choice. So here it is. You have you have Reverend Warnock who won on election night. Right. That should have been enough. But yet still then has to mount a campaign in a runoff election. And by the way, a shortened runoff election. And Paige, we know why the runoff election period was shortened. We know why it was shortened. It was shortened because Reverend Warnock won a runoff election after the 2020 Senate race. He and John Ossoff both won their runoff elections, and that used to be a longer period of time. The runoff was in January. In fact, it was January 5th, 2021, the day before the violent attack on the nation's capital. There was a run, there were these runoff elections in Georgia, and then the legislature, as part of its voter suppression law, passed a new bill that shortened the runoff period. And they thought that by shortening the runoff period and by putting that election right after Thanksgiving, they would be able to put a thumb on the scale for Republican candidates. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. It didn't work. And so to watch Reverend Warnock deliver what I think is one of the best, most important political speeches of my lifetime page. I have I was there when Barack Obama spoke uh, at the Democratic Convention in 2004 and gave his famous uh, Red America, Blue America speech. Um, I have seen a lot of really great political speeches. And I will tell you that was one, will go down as one of the most important political 
speeches about democracy and elections. And so I encourage everyone to go read it or listen to it. But it was very, very powerful because, Paige, it, it, it didn't, it, it both had a celebratory feel. Like it was obviously a celebration. He won. Um, and in that sense, it was optimistic, but he didn't sugarcoat the voter suppression. You know, he didn't sugarcoat people waiting in line. He didn't sugarcoat the fact that the state of Georgia tried to prevent there from being Saturday voting the Saturday after Thanksgiving. They tried. They tried to say counties could not allow there to be voting on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And when I say the state of Georgia, I mean the secretary of state. I mean Brad Raffensperger, and I mean his office. So all of you out there, I don't, I don't even bother tweeting at me. Don't bother emailing me about Brad Raffensperger in 2000. Congratulations, Brad Raffensperger didn't commit a felony in 2000, in 2022, rather. I'm sorry, in 2020. Like, just like spare me it, though. Okay, he didn't commit a felony in 2020. Congratulations. That does not make him a hero. It makes him a citizen. But he has been a vote suppressor before and he's been a vote suppressor afterwards and he and his office tried to prevent there from being um uh uh his office tried to prevent there from being voting on the saturday after thanksgiving and it turns out we had to sue them and we did and we won and then they appealed they didn't by the way page they didn't walk away they didn't say oh you know what we got the law wrong you know what, let's just let there be Saturday voting. Things. I mean, they appealed. They appealed to the uh, to the Court of Appeals. And it was only after we won at the Court of Appeals that Rassenberger changed his tune and said, okay, we'll have Saturday voting. The RNC and the Republican Party appealed to the state Supreme Court where they lost 9-0. But, but, you know, voter suppression takes a lot of different forms. And so one form is like what you were talking about in, in North Carolina. I mean, we see that your home state of Texas, I mean, most voter suppression place in the country, worst election laws in the country, worst election administration in the country. Just, I mean, just, and by the way, some of the best local election administrators uh, will try to do the best they can against a hard system. But, but, but we, we, we see those, that kind of voter suppression, but the other kind of voter suppression is what we've seen in Georgia, which is a runoff law that was intended to harm black voters and then banning Saturday voting. You know, Paige, I don't know if you followed this statistic. There were 70, people talk about in their right, there were 70,000 people, 70,000 Georgians were able to vote on that day, more than 70,000. Do you know that more than half of that 70,000 were black voters? I didn't, I didn't see that. I don't mean that they were disproportionately represented. Right, disproportionately represented means that they voted in excess of their numbers. I mean, literally a majority, a majority, more than 50% of the voters who voted on that day were black voters. So tell me everyone out there how just coincidental it was that the Georgia Republicans running elections in Brad Rathenberg's office fought against that voting day being available to people. Tell me again how that was just a good faith interpretation of all. Okay. It, it, it wasn't, and you're not going to convince me that it was, any more than you're going to convince me that Brad Rassenberger now wants to change. You saw he now wants to do away with the runoff elections in Georgia. Yes. Now he says that they're too expensive and time-consuming after overseeing two major runoffs in two election cycles. Were they less time-consuming a year or two years ago before he shortened the time period? 
I mean, honestly, shortening the time period was only going to make it worse. He knew that, but he supported that, right? His, he only changed his tune now that we've have had now two successive cycles where Democratic candidates have prevailed in those runoffs. So here's my bottom line. Runoff elections, Senate runoff elections are wrong. There should not be Senate runoff elections. We should get rid of Senate runoff elections. They are racist in their origin and they are unnecessary. They are expensive. They burden the system. They are wrong. But let's not call, forget to call out the hypocrisy here. Let's not act like somehow this is born of some altruism. This is born out of hardcore partisan decision-making. It may come to the right conclusion if they do away with the, these runoffs, but that doesn't excuse what we have seen there. And Paige, you know, it's not just what we've seen in Georgia or for that matter, you know, the good news in North Carolina. As we are looking ahead to 2023, we are already seeing really ominous signs uh, uh, ominous clouds gathered on the horizon in places like Ohio and elsewhere. Right. So 2023, basically every state legislature will come back in session. The Ohio oh, legislature. Oh, yay. <laughs> so it's our favorite now, time remember of year. Remember when we used to do the legislature? Remember, remember when we were doing spaces and we would, every week would be like, this legislature and that legislature? We're going back to that? We were like, here's a new bill that was introduced. Here's a new bill that was passed. That's coming back. If you... If you can believe it, it was 2021 when we saw all of those, all of those major voter suppression laws, like in Georgia, Florida, Texas. I thought you promised me the Texas legislature is like cicadas. They only come around once in a while. Well, you know, they only come around every other year when there's not a special session called. And here we are. And here we are. It's time for them to come back out. Um, so in Texas, we're already watching a couple of things. The Texas Secretary of State has resigned. Uh, John Scott, he was involved in litigation to try to overturn the 2020 election. And Greg Abbott said that makes you qualified to be the Texas Secretary of State. So he was in charge of elections this year. He has just resigned. Um, Abbott is appointing retiring state Senator Jane Nelson to take the position. So she'll be up for confirmation by the Texas legislature when it comes back into session. Texas, not to be outdone by Florida, now also wants their own election police force. So we'll see legislation about that. Um, we, we mentioned Ohio. The Ohio legislature is still in session. They actually have just passed a bill. They have sent it to the governor's desk for signatures that would require virtually all Ohio voters to present a form of photo ID to vote. Currently under Ohio law, if you don't have a photo ID, you have alternative options to prove your identity to vote. This bill would get away with that. It also moves up the deadline to request an absentee ballot. It moves up the deadline for returned absentee ballots to be received by election offices. Mark, which we've talked about before, moving those types of deadlines really hurts overseas and military voters who need that extra time for their ballot to come in. It cuts early voting. It restricts drop boxes. It's a terrible bill all around. And it's now at the governor's desk awaiting his signature. Yeah. So unfortunately, we are not near the end of voter suppression in this country. You know, there's been a lot of talk, Paige, in the last, you know, since Election Day, really, that, you know, maybe Republicans have learned that 
talking badly about election administration is bad politics. Maybe fighting against the, you know, drop boxes is bad politics. Maybe telling voters not to vote by mail is bad electoral politics. And, you know, for a brief moment there, Paige, I won't say I was, I was, I mean, I'm pretty cynical, so I'm not going to say I was like, I was like suckered into it. But for a brief moment there, I thought, okay, maybe, you know, maybe the, the people at the Republican Party have come to realize that opposing democracy is actually an issue that offends swing voters. You know, that's one of those interesting things from some of the post-election polls we've all seen is that is that these democracy issues, they weren't necessarily people's top issues, but they were the top, their number one issue, but they were important issues, particularly to those sort of swing voters. And, and so you thought, well, maybe the Republican Party will recast itself on this. But I have to say that that notion didn't last very long. I mean, when you talk about what's going on in Ohio and Texas, when you talk about, um, you know, the, the contests in Arizona and everything else that we've covered today, um, it does not feel like we are in for a awakening by the Republicans to that they will reject the big lie or they will reject um, election denialism or voter suppression. You know, I think that there is something at this point in some ways structural about the Republican Party that that has them bound to this. And they kind of even the people who think it's a bad idea have no way to get off, uh, get off this because they're just they're just um, they're trapped in it. They have lied to their voters and their supporters for so long that those voters believe uh, and therefore it's hard for these politicians to now back away uh, and the structures and the systems of their of their party sort of make this uh, impossible. So, Paige, I know this is our last podcast, which is ironic to say since it's our first podcast, but it's our last podcast of the year. Um, we will be back next year with uh, more Defending uh, Democracy. Um, but it's our last podcast of the year. But as, as we sort of look at the year that was and all of the litigation we saw Republicans engage in, we did see a huge surge of litigation. Um, uh, uh, we we would hope that we wouldn't see this next year, but it kind of feels like next year is going to be more of the same from the Republicans. And, and we're going to see more and more litigation, more and more fights over election administration, changed laws and the like. So something tells me we will have a busy um, next year. Paige, I know we have a different format now and a different... Um, mechanism for taking in questions and the 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 democracy docket control room did a remarkable job in getting us set up on short notice for the uh, uh for for podcasts rather than spaces so congratulations to that entire team of uh, of engineers and producers and, and executive producers and and junior producers who who got us all set up but do we have do we have any mechanism for questions Yes, we've been collecting some questions from Twitter over the past few days. Our first question is from Mary, who asked, President Joe Biden mentioned the Electoral Count Reform Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act in his Bill of Rights Day proclamation. If that legislation would, was put into effect, would it end the waves of litigation we're seeing both against voter suppression laws 
and stop the wave of litigation from conservative groups seeking to restrict voting and subvert elections. So, um, so the Electoral Count Reform Act um, solves one problem. It is a very important problem, but it is, but it is just solves one problem, which is the how do you get from in presidential elections? How do you get from election results to certification in the House? Right, there is a process that begins with sort of the vote tallying after the election and then the governor signing our certificate of ascertainment and then the electors meeting in the electoral college and then the house and senate convening as we saw uh, in 2021 on january 6th and there's a whole there's a very old statute that governs that process and so what the new 2022 law would do is it would update that and it would build in some additional safeguards um, to ensure that process happens smoothly. Um, for those of you who followed my writing and my speaking on this, I was not always a huge enthusiast for reforming the Electoral Count Act. I thought some of the early drafts might actually cause more problems than they solved. I think that um, Senator Klobuchar did a remarkably good job in the hearing, the markup hearings she held, such that uh, uh, such that um, uh, that bill was vastly improved. And the effect of that is now a bill that I think very much is is worth passing, is needed, and so that'll be good. Um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, it's a tragedy that it didn't pass. It's a tragedy that the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act didn't pass. It's a tragedy um, that the uh, For the People Act didn't pass, and it's a tragedy that the Freedom to Vote Act didn't pass. So, so those are all sort of iterations of the same theme, which is to set minimum floors um, for voting in this country and prevent voter discrimination or discrimination in voting. And and when I say it's a tragedy, it's a tragedy um, for voters. It's a tragedy for democracy. And so I I wish I wish those bills had passed. They were the most important bills that we needed, and we didn't get them. And now we are more reliant on 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 organizations to overcome voter suppression and do out education outreach. We're more dependent on the courts and lawyers to bring litigation. We're more dependent on uh, on out news outlets like Democracy Docket to educate voters about this. A lot of this would have been simpler if we had had a national bill um, that would create more uniformity across states and minimum thresholds. But that's but that's where we are. Harry asks, would it be better or worse for our democracy if the Arizona election challenges get a full trial before being rejected? You know, Harry, this is a this is an like the unanswerable existential question. Are you better off when 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 a crazy conspiracy theory is put forth? Are you better off shutting it down and dismissing it quickly as ridiculous? Or are you better off letting it get a full airing, let people feel like they had an opportunity to say their piece and then have it dismissed? Um, you know, my as a lawyer, I think the answer is it ought to be dismissed. We should not allow our courts to be used as platforms to air, you know, right wing conspiracy theories and bring cases without merit. And I have, you know, championed and cheered the efforts by courts to bring sanctions and other discipline against these frivolous attacks on democracy. So my own personal view is that it should be dismissed. It should be dismissed quickly and harshly and clearly in no uncertain terms. Um, but I do understand the other argument that you let that you let these things play out so that the public can see 
um, that there was no there there. And the supporters of these conspiracy theories can't say they didn't get their day in court. But, but I but I think I come down on the side of dismissing them. Our last question of the day is from Peter, who asks, if Twitter is no longer around, where can we find Mark and Democracy Docket? Yeah, so this is like a really um, unfortunate but but real but real um, threat right now. You know, um, when we started Democracy Docket, you know, Twitter was a thriving site for news and information. And that's not to say that it didn't have trolls and it didn't have, you know, a lot of unpleasantness and it wasn't, you know, at times really frustrating. But it was a really good home for Democracy Docket. It was a place that Democracy Docket really sort of built a following on social media and was able to promote its content and get people to be aware of the website. We did our page. We launched our audio, uh, whatever you want to call it, our audio conversations, and they became very, very popular on Twitter spaces. Um, but it's clear that Elon Musk is not interested in maintaining Twitter as what it was. He's not even interested in making it a free free speech hellscape, which was what he promised us in some ways that he would do, but wouldn't do, but was doing. It's clear now he is going to tilt the platform to meet his whims. And so he shut down spaces because journalists were talking about the fact that he had wrongfully um, suspended a bunch of journalists' account. And it's no longer the reliable platform that it was. I don't think I can say to people that, you know, we will be on Twitter for forever because Twitter may not have us for forever. Twitter may not exist if Elon Musk gets in a bad mood. So so we have started to look at other social media platforms, as I've as I've said, Paige, I know as the team has said on Democracy Docket's Twitter account, as I've said on mine, we're not leaving Twitter, but we are adding other platforms to our portfolio. We're on Post, we're on Mastodon, we're on, uh, 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 I know uh, uh, Democracy Docket is also on Instagram and is also on TikTok. I'm not, but but uh, but Democracy Docket is. So for me, you know, it's Twitter, probably Post next, followed by Mastodon. And for for um, for uh, for Democracy Docket, it's Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Mastodon, posts, you know, the whole panoply of, of of social media. But the thing I tell everyone is that the most important thing you can do if you want to stay in touch with me and Democracy Docket is to subscribe. You know, we we go to tremendous lengths to keep Democracy Docket content free. Like there's never a cost to accessing anything on Democracy Docket. And that includes subscribing to its newsletter content and its other content that doesn't is not posted on the website. It is all free and we don't send spam and we don't, you know, sell, sell your name to people. We when people sign up, we do it so that they can continue to get good, accurate, free information. So the first thing I would tell you to do is sign up on democracydocket.com, Click on the little subscribe link. And otherwise, follow us across as many platforms as you're as you are on. Where we will go in the new year with with respect to this podcast, um, I think it's unlikely we go back to Spaces. Uh, I think Spaces, even if it comes back online, is probably not going to be a reliable hosting thing unless Elon Musk does something yet new again over the holidays. So we'll have more information um, on Democracy Docket um, on the site um, in its 
you know, various content uh, and also uh, through its social media about where and how you can uh, you can find us, uh, including where you'll be able to find the audio portion of our offerings uh, in the new year. Paige, with that, um, with that said, um, what is Democracy Docket doing in 2023? Well, before we get to 2023, we got to get through 2022. Like we said, all of these Arizona election contests have hearings next week. Democracy Docket will be covering them live when we can and keeping you updated on that. In 2023, Mark, state legislatures are back in session. Like we said, we will be tracking all of the voter suppression bills that we can find from start to finish. We'll be telling you how lawmakers are either making voting easier or harder. All of this litigation that is going on, we'll keep tracking it. And we'll continue to keep you informed and updated on everything related to voting rights, redistricting, and democracy from the local, state, to federal levels. Well, so lots to come. Lots to come in the new year at Democracy Docket. This is, um, as uh, we said at the outset, our first ever podcast hosted on podcast platforms. Um, uh, so uh, however you're listening to this, do me a favor, share this uh, with your friends. Let them know that this exists. Let them know that they can hear from Paige and I on a weekly basis um, and uh, post something on social media. Let us know what you liked or didn't like about this very first um, non-spaces hosted podcast. So with that, um, thank you, everyone. Uh, everyone have a safe and happy holiday and a safe and happy and healthy new year. And we will be back in 2023 to talk more about democracy and everything else that is on the docket. Thank you.